Welcome to the Education of a Financial Planner, where we look at the major concepts in financial planning through the lens of two quant investors who are learning the ropes of the planning process and how to help clients achieve their long-term goals. Learn along with us as experienced financial planner Matt Ziegler helps us understand the most important financial planning concepts that impact all of us and how we can apply them to achieve the best outcomes in our financial lives. In each episode, we will work through one major financial planning concept from the ground up and learn how we can apply it in the real world. From retirement to college savings to taxes to estate planning, we will cover a wide range of topics that apply to each of our everyday lives. We hope you will join us in our learning journey. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at the Lydia Capital Management. Matt Ziegler is Managing Director at Sunpoint Investments. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. All right. Today, we are going to talk about um, this idea around building investment processes, what goes into an investment or planning process. Shouldn't you say investing? It's planning too. Um, we can kind of bring a perspective from investment strategy, systematic in investment um, methods. And Matt, you'll bring in sort of the planning um, and what you do with clients in terms of the long-term process that you have with advising um, on financial planning related topics and issues. But I, I think, you know, it, this is sort of an important, a, a lot of things that we do day in and day out for investors, it all has to do with the processes that we build. And so, you know, we wanted to talk through how we look at building these processes, um, what goes into them, sort of the criteria that you want, or at least that we believe you want to try to incorporate into your process. And then questions around if you are following an investment process or even a planning process, and there's challenges along the way. So for example, a strategy starts to underperform or a, a, a factor that you're following, you know, goes through a period of underperformance. How do you think about that? through the lens of the process that you are following and when do you perhaps make modifications or change your process. So that's going to be sort of the core of the discussion um, today. But let's start with, the, I guess, the high-level question is, what do you guys think are the characteristics that goes into a good long-term process? Yeah, well, I'll let Matt add to this too, but I, I have three basically. One, one is it has to make sense to some degree. So why, I remember in our interview we did with Ben Anker, he talked about this. He was talking about like, you have to ask the question, why would I get paid to do this? So if I'm investing in anything, there should be a reason like above just like the risk-free rate, I should get a return. So anything in, a, in an investing process should have some reason why I would earn a return for doing it. If, if there's no reason I would earn a return for doing it, then it doesn't make sense. It, all, it also sensible kind of applies across. You know, if I'm investing in different asset classes or different factors or different anything, like there's got to be a reason they fit together, you know, to try to accomplish what I'm trying to accomplish. So for me, the first one is sensible. And then the second one is based on long-term data. And I guess that's the quant in me that comes up with this, but it really works for anything. Like, you know, if you look at the return of stocks over a hundred years, you know, you get, you get a pretty good premium over the risk-free rate to invest in stocks. You know, you get a premium over the risk-free rate to invest in bonds. You know, if you look at factors like value, there's been a premium associated with them over really long periods of time. So, you know, I, I think anything should be based on, you should have long-term data to back up what you're doing. And then I think the third one, which Matt can really talk to is the most important one, which is it has to actually match with what you're trying to accomplish. Like if I have certain goals that I'm trying to accomplish and I can accomplish those goals with something that's fairly low risk, 
I probably shouldn't be running the focused value portfolio, even though I might think I got a better excess return from the focused value portfolio. So it all has to come back to what you're trying to accomplish. So you, Matt, you could probably add more to that part. So I want to say, I think those three things are actually kind of perfect because it should be sensible in the sense that it has to make sense to you. And that, that's a huge detail here. Like somebody who doesn't understand like deep value and a quantitative approach probably doesn't need to dive into that unless it can be explained to them and it makes sense to them individually. But then that second layer of it has to be based on long-term data and that's, it needs to make sense to you and it needs to make sense to markets. Like it's got to make sense to somebody else. It's got to be proven out or borne out in the data somewhere that this isn't, this isn't just for like sadistic quants like yourselves who want deep value and to go through those periods of time. And then that last piece about it has to meet with the client goals. It has to rhyme with their strategy and what they're trying to do. The strategy should be sensible. It should make sense to you. It should make sense to somebody else, ideally at least your spouse, but in markets, it should show up. And then it has to accomplish something. And that mismatch between what it accomplishes is a huge part of my job as a financial planner is just talking about like, is this matched up or aligned with what you want out of it? Are you way into growth when what you really need is cash because you're buying a house or you're paying for college or something next month? Or are you like all in cash, but you have these lofty ideas of growth, but you have no idea to invest in? So if you get sensible based on long-term data and it meets your own goal or objective tied into it, you got a long-term process, my friend. Well, that, uh, that, that makes sense to you thing, which I missed, is like so, so, so important because everything is going to have a period where it looks bad. And looks bad doesn't just mean it's losing money. Like, for instance, you know, if, if my process is I just invest all my money in T-bills, well, there's going to be massive market runs where everybody else is making tons of money and I'm not losing money, but I'm making way less than them. And if it doesn't make sense to me why I'm completely in T-bills, I'm going to abandon being completely in T-bills. So like I was thinking sensible in a different direction, but that's a more important direction is like for you to stick to your strategy, it's got to make sense to you so you can stick with it. There you go. See, we've already added something to the conversation for you. <laughs> I got to rewrite my article now that this is the we did this based on. <laughs> we got a new article. Come on. <laughs> so, so, so I think the way that you can think about this, let me kind of, uh, I guess, frame it up a little bit differently. So if someone wants to run a marathon, which I have, the goal is running a marathon, completing it or maybe running it in a certain time. So what do you need? You need a sensible training plan. You have to train for a long period of time. Um, and what I would also add in there is you have to train consistently and with a level of repeatability in order to accomplish the goal of finishing the marathon. So, you know, if you think about it that way, you can kind of, there's like, I, I love the way you guys like describe what, both ways you guys tackle it because there's a top down approach. And then there's also sort of more the bottoms up approach in terms of, you know, the inputs into the process. Um, but I think it re really re relates to, you know, sort of running training or training for races that, you know, require some amount of training to do. And, and solve in both directions. That's what you just explained perfectly. Like you want to solve bottom up and you want to solve top down together because anything that's going to be long-term durable has thought about it from both perspectives. That's really, really important. Yeah, and if Justin and I are running a marathon, his process will involve having a nice long lunch when he's done before I even consider uh, being anywhere near the finish line after his four-minute miles the whole way. <laughs> but yeah, Jack, thanks. Uh, I won't be running any four-minute miles anytime soon, but uh, I'm trying my best just to finish these races, which I have one actually this weekend. But um, yeah, let, let's kind of dive in a little bit into how 
based on the things that we've just talked about, how we go about building the investment portfolios that we run and the process that we use uh, here at Validia. Yeah, so I'll talk about it for, as a factor investor, and maybe I'll let Matt talk about it, like building multi-asset portfolios, what he does on the financial planning side more. But for us, you know, we start with sensible, which is, you know, we want, fa we use factors, we use value, we use momentum, we use quality, we use stuff like that. We want it to make sense why they work. And in other episodes, we've kind of go, gone over the idea that, you know, that there's a reason value investing works. It's, you know, it, it makes sense when, when you think through the academic research that supports it, it makes sense that it should work. Value investing is based on long-term data. So, you know, you've got like a hundred years or something of data that shows that value investing works. So that, that's step two of the process. And then step three for us is the really important one, which is meets client goals, which is, you know, we want to make sure we're actually applying these factors in the way that, you know, it, it works towards the goals of that individual client. Because like I talked about before, some clients don't really need to like have very focused portfolios to try to achieve, you know, better returns. Some, for, some clients are fine, you know, with indexes or with slight tilts or something like that. So it's really important to take this process we built and then apply it to the specific client. Um, and also going back to what Matt, adding again, what Matt added to my first answer, like sensible to the client, not just sensible to us. So like if, I, if I'm a big value investor and I'm one of our clients, I probably shouldn't shove the momentum portfolio down your throat because ultimately when the momentum portfolio is not working, you're going to be like, what is this? I'm, I'm just buying these stocks because they're going up. That makes absolutely no sense. And, and you're going to abandon it. So that, that's kind of the way I look at it, I think, from our perspective. Matt, what do you think? Yeah, so I'll invoke music early this time so I don't miss my shot and uh, get young MC'd again on this one. <laughs> the Eric B. and Rakim, the classic song, uh, Don't Sweat the Technique, they get into this idea, and like Rakim's talking about it, it's you don't want to let the technical aspects overwhelm the art form. And I think when we talk about this from the perspective of designing plans, that's it. Like, don't let all the technical details overwhelm the expression of the client. Back to that sensibilities thing. So... I'll connect it back to the, the first episode we did together, talking about that CCBS thing, calendar, the cash flow, and the balance sheet. And when we're sitting with a client and talking about a long-term strategy, the calendar of what's coming and when, the cash flows, which are the money coming in and money coming out, because then that decides what's going to happen to the balance sheet. Are we accumulating assets and where should we be saving to? Or are we spending assets and where should we be taking money from? Inside of that decision, on the balance sheet, when we talk about a long-term investment approach, now we start slicing it between, and at some point we separate between what we call risk mitigation and risky assets. And every strategy kind of gets bucketed into those and they get divided from there. But bottom line is if you're, if you're net saving with nothing on the calendar and you're investing for growth or beyond multiple generations cross asset class, we're going to have far less going into like risk mitigation strategies. Cause we're going to be saying like, what are we trying to pursue growth across all sorts of opportunities. Uh, conversely, if somebody is spending or they're in a period with deficit, maybe they're spending for kids in college or whatever else, then we need more risk mitigation assets to fund that stuff. And so like putting this whole thing together is how do we take strategies that are either risk mitigating or risky in nature and use them to meet the budget goals and objectives in the balance sheet over the long term on that calendar? Long term only works. When you don't sweat the technique, you get that expression right on the front end. Yeah, you've done a good job helping me with this podcast, like think higher level, because I'm the guy that like when I'm thinking about all this stuff, it's like, oh, let's show the client my portfolio optimization code and show how amazing this, this portfolio we built is. And like, you know, it really is like thinking at a high level, going back to this idea of the client goals, like the process is here. 
to accomplish one thing, the client goals. And, you know, we need to communicate that process in such a way that the client understands how it relates to those client goals and is not like, you know, trapped in this whole like factor optimization process that no one cares about but me. It's, I, and I really do emphasize like the don't sweat the technique emphasis here. It's like, so you have Rakim, one of like the great MCs of all time for like pioneered internal rhyme schemes in a way that nobody else had done. And he's literally got a whole song that's like, don't imitate this. It's like Warren Buffett being like, just stop. You're not Berkshire and you're not Hathaway. Like, you need to figure this out for yourself. I can show you what I'm doing. But like, you need to figure this out for you. Learn from this and don't, don't purely copy it. Going back to what I mentioned earlier about, you know, embedded in these investment processes, at least through the lens that we kind of run them, is this disciplined, repeatable, uh, consistent, uh, sort of view of when you're building these portfolios and following these factor strategies that sort of that those characteristics need to be embedded in the process. And by nature, if you have a quantitative process, that just happens because that's how quant strategies are run. But, you know, there's always the sort of the, the big question around how do you approach or when do you consider potentially changing an investment process um, and sort of let's work through the things that we've seen throughout our career that, you know, now in, in hindsight, we can look back and say, you know what, maybe the investment process should have been relooked at, tweaked, whatever it is. Um, so what, what, what are some of those things um, from your perspective, do you think? I want to say this part first, because I think the planning part comes before the portfolio part, but the portfolio part is super important too. So on just the planning side, a process needs to get updated when the circumstances change. So like the planning process and doing the calendar, the cash flow, and the balance sheet is to lay out a baseline scenario. But if somebody dies early, if you live longer than expected, if somebody gets sick, if somebody gets sued, whatever the situation, those are all long-term plan changers. And then everything needs to get reevaluated and restructured. So on the planning side, usually it's life-related changes that say, we're either abandoning or tweaking this strategy in a way that's more than, you know, Elmer's glue and popsicle sticks. On the portfolio side, and this is really hard because back to that point you made, Jack, about serial underperformance in certain strategy types, and if you're wired to accept that pain. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit on the investment side inside the balance sheet when you go, this doesn't make sense anymore, to hell with this one. Yeah, you know, you made a really important point. And the idea is all this is set up for the long term. You know, like looking on the investing side, we're saying what works over the long term. When you're building a portfolio, if you're a client, you're saying, what are their long-term goals and how can I help them achieve their long-term goals? But just because something is over the long term doesn't mean it doesn't ever change. And, and that's sort of a lesson you learn as you do this. Like there, there are certain things that work in the markets over very long periods of time and something might change. You know, something might change in markets, something might change in the way they operate, whatever it is. There's, there's a lot of different things that can change where you say, all right, I've got this long-term data, but I've got a clear reason why this long-term data shouldn't apply anymore. This doesn't work anymore. Or something might change. You know, the client may have the greatest long-term plan possible, but something happens in their life. And suddenly we can't just be like, well, something happened in their life, but this is our long-term plan. We developed over the long-term. We're not changing it. Like you, you, on either side, you can't be so stuck in the sand that you say, I'm not going to change this no matter what. So I think a change to both the client's goals and a change something that goes on in markets, and we'll talk about this more when we talk about the 60-40 and, and you know, value investing, but 
something along those lines. And then the other thing that I put on here, because I think it's important, and I think we're kind of experiencing it right now is you might see products become available or investing strategies become available that weren't before. And you're seeing this a lot in the ETF space right now. You're seeing a lot of stuff that might've only been available for high net worth people become available in the ETF space for your average person. And a lot of that may not be appropriate for most people, but some of it might. And so as, you, as those strategies come down, if they can be used to build a more optimal portfolio, I think that's a reason to look at an investing process. You know, that, that probably segues pretty well into like the 60-40, which we're going to talk about. But to me, those are the three reasons. You know, something's changed with the market, something's changed with the person themselves, or something becomes available that wasn't available before. Yeah. So, I mean, let's, we can either use a 60-40, but the example I was kind of thinking about is let's say you have a process in which you rebalance between a lot of different asset classes, but you have U.S. stocks and international stocks. You know, it's been pretty horrible 15 years for non-U.S. equities. Um, but, you know, would I don't know if it would be prudent for if you're rebalancing and you have a slice of your portfolio that has international stocks in it to completely abandon international stocks just because they've underperformed U.S. stocks for the last 15 years. So that would be an example of a process that I think you wouldn't want to abandon. But then there are times where I think you would, you know, want to maybe reconsider parts of your process. Um, and Jack, I think in your article, you talked about some of the things that you would want to look at to uh, make that consideration. Yeah, you know, we should do 60-40 value stocks, but this is an excellent example because international stocks have been awful for a really long period of time. So as someone who invests in international stocks, how do I think about this problem of do I abandon international stocks? Well, one thing I might do is I might look at the long-term data and say, like, is this dominance of the US over everything else? Has this existed over 100 years and not just 30? And the answer to that is no. There's been very long periods, you know, where international stocks have done a lot better than US stocks. And, you know, although this, this, this period of international stocks struggling has been very long, there's many other periods in history where international stocks struggle. So, you know, that might be one thing I might consider as I look at this, like, historically, international stocks have added value. And also just from a sensible perspective, you know, it's hard to think that, you know, there's something going on in the United States that we're just better than the rest of the world. Um, you know, to me, that doesn't make a ton of sense. But what does make some sense, and we've talked about this on our other podcast, that, you know, show us your portfolio, is the idea that U.S. companies are becoming maybe more multinational. So maybe you are getting more international exposure within the U.S. companies. So those are the types of things you would think about. You know, as I analyze the situation, I've got these international stocks. They're killing me. They've been killing me for 30 years or whatever. Do I want to keep having the international stocks? Um, and also things like valuations, you know, are international stocks cheap? Um, or have they just been struggling so bad business-wise that they're the same level of expensive they were before? You know, it's just they, the businesses have been doing horribly. So to me, like when, when I'm thinking, and I'm not giving an answer to the question, but because this is more about thinking through, but those are the types of things I'd be thinking about if I was an investor and deciding, do I want to keep my international stocks or do I want to get rid of them? Matt, how do you, how do you manage, um, you know, using that example, um, if, if you, you know, were, have been working with a client for the last five years and you've tried to maintain some exposure to international stocks and international stocks have continued to be a drag and the client is like, listen, Matt, for the last five years, you know, this sleeve of international portfolios, you know, has dramatically underperformed. Why are we still in it? How do you manage the, those, that strong investor behavior to want to react to you know, short to midterm and even in this case, a little bit longer performance data and not have the client sort of override what is effectively a good process um, and you know, potentially hurt their, hurt, hurt their future returns by 
And I mean, you you are effectively maintaining 100% discretion over the portfolio, but I know you sit down and talk with clients and you know you listen to what the feedback that they're, they're getting. So I'm just wondering in a situation like that, how do you manage that type of behavior? So I think there's there's two layers. The first is understanding that we're like we're building portfolios with a set of assumptions and other things in play. So there's a top-down process that says like, like generically speaking, we're always going to have some amount of developed international in every portfolio just because we're trying to capture some part of that like global equity return. And we know that it's lumpy and comes from different quarters. So I'm not going to be able to tell you in advance when Europe's going to do better than the US. Uh, however, that being said, we also try to think intelligently through if there's something that might be handicapping what we're doing in some way, where we might want to be more active and passive. And I think everybody kind of knows this story when we talk about things like bonds, where certain active strategies have demonstrable alpha in bonds. It's harder to find in say like US large cap stocks. But I think like Europe is a great example. I think emerging markets over the last several years have been, there's been some good evidence of this where you might go, we're going to have this allocation, but back to Jack's point about changing your options, we might want to change the options or the strategic approach to how we implement it. So that's included things like using more growth or active oriented managers in Europe for the last 10 years would be one prime example with post Brexit, with everything that was going on to the banking industry. There was a lot of data that just suggested the European banking systems got some major, major issues right now. It's going to be really hard for them to have profitable and probably generate returns. So therefore, like, can we find active managers who just kind of like strip them out of the benchmarks? And that's another way that we deal with this is it might be, it's still a part of the long-term allocation, but we find an active manager or an index carve out to say, what parts of this do we want to avoid? Because at the end of the day, these strategies are not just about capturing upside. They're about avoiding obvious downside when we see it. That's a huge part of the conversation process with clients and implementation. Let's work through a few other examples and try to apply the criteria around when you would consider maybe changing an investment process if something's not working. So let's start with, we had mentioned the 60-40 before. Obviously, the 60-40 from like 1981 up until the end of 2021 was a beast. It was something like a 9% annualized compounded return. And you had two things going on. You had really good performance out of stocks. You had really strong performance out of bonds. But since the be end of 21, beginning of 22, um, you know, bonds lost a lot. Stocks lost at the same time. And so, you know, we're sort of in this period where, and we'll see, I mean, inflation seems to be moderating, but, you know, I think the, the verdict's still out on that, whether it's going to get back down to the 2% rate that, you know, the Fed is trying to get it to. I mean, obviously interest rates aren't back down anywhere near there. So how would we apply this, in, you know, investment process set of criteria to the 60-40? Yeah. So, so question one is, is it sensible? And, you know, I think a lot of people are talking about this idea is the 60, 40 dead. And, and I think that's kind of, it's kind of dumb to be honest with you. There, there's definitely a question of, is there, are there better, more optimal portfolios in the 60, 40? And that's a very legitimate question, but I don't think this idea that the 60, 40 is dead is very smart because think about it. I mean, is there a reason I should get a risk premium for investing in stocks? Yes, there is. Is there a reason I should get a premium, you know, as I investing in like a broad portfolio of bonds? Yeah. You know, I'm taking credit risk, I'm taking term, whatever it is, like I should get a premium for that. So to me, though, over very long periods of time, those risk premiums still exist. So I should still get a pretty good return investing in stocks and bonds. 
But that's that's not the major question. The major question is, is there a better way to do this? And, you know, we saw for 30 years or 40 years or whatever it was, there were the inverse correlation between stocks and bonds. So from a behavioral perspective, I was very happy I had the bonds when the stocks were going down. Now we're seeing the opposite of that. Now we're seeing them become correlated. We're seeing them go down together. So should I have other sources of return? You know, can I create a more optimal portfolio by using other, introducing other sources of return that do well when stocks and bonds are doing poorly? And to, to me, that makes a lot of sense. And that gets back to what I was talking about before, which is there's a lot of ETFs and other things coming out there right now that allow your average person to have access to some of these sources of return that they didn't before. So I think that's a, I think the 60-40 being dead is not a, you know, a smart question. You know, I think it's still sensible over the long term. It's still, be, it's still based on long-term data. And for some clients, it's going gonna, it's gonna to meet their goals, I think. But I think, you know, also we have to balance that with there might be better ways to do this. And this is where you sort of have to challenge your long-term process a lot of the time is say, you know, maybe my long-term process still makes sense, but maybe there's other things that have come, come out that maybe allow me to have a better process than that, even though it still makes sense. So I don't know, Matt, how do you think about that? So I share the pet peeve with the 60-40 being dead. <laughs> I don't know if it's like the, the being raised by English teachers or whatever else, like, but it's this idea that like, well, if it's dead, then something's gone. So like, to your point, like the stocks not exist anymore. Did we bury them? Like the bonds not exist anymore? Because I still see them walking around in the world. I still see everybody talking about the Fed. So how can, you know, 40% of the portfolio be dead if I still see it everywhere? If we accept that it's still alive, then we have to do what you just said. And I think a lot of this to me wraps back into either that risky versus risk mitigation framework we use to define strategies, or this, the idea of like, what do you need it for? So like, if you need money to do something in the next handful of years and you don't want to deal with equity drawdowns, bonds are a pretty good place to look still because you can go out one, two, three, four, five years, whatever it may be. And you can say, I don't really need this for total return. I need this for portfolio stabilizer to offset some incoming liability when I don't want to have to deal with an equity drawdown that I can't predict. And so from a portfolio construction in a planning standpoint to build a plan, that you can stick with for the long term, you should be building that plan from the available tools in your disposal. And for many retail or affluent investors, that's primarily going to be made up of like stocks, bonds, and maybe private real estate. But as you get more sophisticated, there's just more strategies out there. And there's different ways you can engineer things for different needs, especially the longer your time horizon goes. And I, I like some of these alternatives behaviorally as well. You know, I think it's, it, it's when stocks and bonds are going down together, as we learned in 2022, it can be tough for investors, especially when they're used to bonds being their protection. And so some of these other things, although they're going to have their bad periods as well, every, everything has their bad periods. And you know, that, that's something you have to learn when you look at any products. But these other things can be a free lunch, you know, if they're used properly, like things like managed futures, you know, if they're used properly, if they're wait, run wait, by intelligent not people. Not a free lunch. An appropriately but, priced lunch. Yeah, like a very, well, a, a lunch, yeah, exactly. <laughs> A lunch that is, is very, very inexpensive, I would say, um, in terms of not in terms of year to year, but in terms of the long term. So, you know, something like managed futures, these other uncorrelated asset classes, there's going to be times you're holding those things. and You're going to be like, why the hell am I holding these things? Like, you know, and we know that because there was a huge period where managed futures did not work for a very long period, you know, or at least work relative to stocks and bonds for a very long period of time. So we know that can be the case. But like for people like me who look at it, like from a long term perspective and look at risky return statistics and stuff. That's where it looks more like a free lunch. Like I'm getting something and I'm not giving very much up to get. Yeah. And I think that was, that was a huge part. That was, that was a huge thing for us. And a lot of the things we did in business, especially working 
uh, did a lot of work with like pension clients and stuff like that in the post-financial crisis period. And when you lost the ability to learn, earn a return really on bonds, so that 60-40 is dead. It was a not quite dead, but probably something more, more for avoiding than holding in portfolios. You had to look for other ways to generate stable, shorter term returns that would have less variance. And whether it's managed futures or uh, merger arbitrage, like unlevered merger arbitrage, fully hedged deals, like there's just stuff that provides risk and return that you can target over various timeframes. And I think that's what we're getting at with a lot of this stuff is just understanding the timeframe this is likely to bear out over and what's the longest period you might go without bearing it out. And then what's the shortest period it might go where it might bear out better than expected because while not abandoning strategies, it certainly helps inform dynamically what strategies you should and would be taking away from. And so I think our verdict on the 60-40 is it is not dead. However, there, there might be, you know, if you look at this using the framework we've kind of outlined at the beginning, there might be better ways to do this. And by the way, back to your original point, I hate this dead thing. Like any, anything that doesn't work in investing, it's always like, is this dead? Is this dead? Is value investing dead? Is the 60-40 dead? Or international stocks dead? Like none of this stuff is going to be dead probably. Um, so people like to do it because I think it generates headlines or whatever. But, you know, typically when you're hearing something in the news, like, is this thing dead? You know, probably in the next 20 years, you're probably going to do pretty well with it. It's, it's probably a pretty generally good rule. It's a good sentiment indicator, I think, <laughs> when people declare death. And I would know as someone who, you know, lives in the land of existential crises and where my brain's always taking things. Yeah, it's not dead. It's just the 60-40 went through its golden bachelor period. Uh, speaking of dead or not dead, do you want to just address the uh, sort of the value factor, factor investing with this sort of framework? Yeah, same idea. Again, like, you know, if we're looking at value investing dead, and this has been something that's been in the news a lot. I try to write an article every year where I talk about, where I try to say value investing is dead and I try to challenge my beliefs that it's not. There's a lot of reasons you could talk about, you know, why value investing might not work anymore. You know, people talk about technology has killed value. You know, there's all kinds of other stuff. You know, big data has killed value. There's all kinds of stuff that says, you know, the market's more efficient now, whatever it is that says, you know, value doesn't work. But again, going back to our original framework, do I have 100 years of data that says value works? Yes. Now, where it becomes a little bit more tricky here is, is it sensible? Are, are there reasons to say that value either maybe not doesn't work, but has to be changed. Well, yes, there, there are reasons to say that depending on how you're doing it. So if, if I'm using the price to book ratio and I'm trying to apply, apply that to Google, well, what, what is on Google? What is in Google's book value? Like some servers, some, some office space maybe or something? Like is, there, like, is comparing Google's market value to that a good idea? You know, probably not. So maybe, you know, if I'm using a price to book based process, I have to say, maybe I need to update my book value, you know, to, to reflect, Google brand or their technology, you know, or the value of their search engine or all that stuff. Maybe I need to adjust that. Or maybe as our guest Kai Wu has said, maybe I have to get rid of, you know, go off the balance sheet and try to find more advanced techniques to value these things, not by like, you know, capitalizing intangible assets or something, but by actually looking at what these things are worth using big data and stuff like that. So that's an example of is value investing dead? It probably is not dead but it may need to be modified depending on the way you're doing it. And that's the hard thing is like a long-term investor is that balance is very, very tricky because a lot of times when these things, when people are calling for these things to be dead, a lot of times they come raging back. And so you're sort of, you, you can't use long-term data. You know, Corey Hostein wrote about this in his Dr. Fimblewinter paper. Like if I want to just use pure data to say value investing is dead, I don't have enough time in my investing lifetime to disprove 
the history that I already have. So I can't use that. So I have to use, which I hate doing as a quant, I have to use my own intuition to try to figure this out. And I hate using my own intuition because that's, that's why I'm a quant is I don't want to use my own intuition. But when you do that, you do say, all right, certain value metrics probably don't make as much sense as they used to make. And I really liked when we had Kai on the podcast, he gave this as an example of the way he's doing it, which is I have this new way to do value investing with intangible assets. I have this old way to do value investing. Like, why do I have to pick a side? Maybe what I should do is in my process, I should use both so that if, if the case where these old style value companies come raging back and have a decade long run, I've still got exposure to them. But in the case where I'm wrong and this intangible adjustments need to be made, I, may, I have that too. And so I think that's the answer a lot of times in investing as we look at problems like this is, you know, it, it's not like, do I abandon it? Do I throw in the towel? It's like, can I make changes around the edges that make this thing more sensible that kind of handle the situation in both cases. One case where value is going to struggle for a much longer time and one case where it's going to come roaring back. And, and I try to hedge myself in both those cases. Did you guys ever have, or um, have you read More Money Than God? Did you ever have Sebastian Malaby on the show? No. I think it's Sebastian Malaby. Are you familiar with this book? Have you read this book? I'm not. No. Uh, so excellent book. Gladly plug it somewhere on a shelf here somewhere. Uh, More Money Than God. It's basically a history of the hedge fund industry. And that book had kind of a profound insight on me, probably in like in the not long after the financial crisis period. So probably like 2012 or 13, maybe ish, I read it. And one of the things that's always stuck to me about this book was it was about how like ideas that usually produced excess returns, like have their time in the sun and then sort of like fade into the background and about how you like can't recreate those ideas sometimes when they work even though like empirically everybody's like, oh, that's the thing. Like, oh, that Buffett thing. Oh, that price to book thing. Oh, that whatever thing. It's like, no, they have their time in the sun, but then they get integrated into other things. And what that book shows is like buy hedge fund titan after hedge fund titan all the way back to the beginning of the hedge fund industry. It's like, oh, well, this thing worked because they had this insight and then went out and exploited this market efficiency until it got institutionalized or wrapped into everybody else's process. And it's, it's kind of, I'll take it back to music again. It's kind of a lot like music like that, where you have like your hit songs, your thing that's cool, but then a year or two or 10 years later, you're like, is Greta Van Fleet just doing the Led Zeppelin thing? Like just like a stone cold knockoff? Like should anybody care about this at all? Or should we just say this is a knockoff? Even though they're good, is it actually like adding anything new? And that's kind of like the 18,000th like Warren Buffett wannabe strategy in, you know, 2023. And it's like, well, it's not 1965 in Western Massachusetts anymore. So understanding the, like the integration of these things and that flavors change over time. And it makes it a lot more interesting too, because we get to pay attention to what's working in the world, not to chase, but to understand what those underpinnings are. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? Like just tracking what the new developments are at any point in time? Yeah, I mean, your hedge fund example is a great example because that's where this happens like on, on hyperspeed, what we're talking about which is you see this all the time. It's like, here's what all the hedge funds are doing. They're doing this thing or they're doing this thing. And then eventually none of the hedge funds are doing it anymore because they all do it and it stops working and they move on to the next thing. So, you know, we're talking about like hundred year time frames and factor investing and stuff, but that, that's where you really see this is, you know, because the, the shorter term stuff that the hedge funds are doing, you know, typically you'll see them find something that works. If the word will get out that it works, everybody does it, it stops working. And so it, that, that shows the need to always look at your investment process, because if hedge funds like that, you know, if they just keep doing it, you know, just keep banging their head against the wall and doing the same thing that's worked, eventually it's going to stop working and they're not going to be in business anymore. And so even for people like us who have ultra long timeframes, 
we still have to do that. We still have to say, do the facts support this? Does it still work? Is there a reason it should still work? You know, we have to constantly be having that discussion with ourselves because we're going to run into the same problem they do sometimes. Like, I don't think by any means, like what I was doing at the beginning of my career is still going to be working at the end of my career. Maybe the core principle of value might still be working, but the way I'm defining it, the way I'm doing it, you know, that's going to be very different. And you see that in even the best investors. I mean, we had Jim O'Shaughnessy in the podcast. He talked about this. Like at one point, price to book was a significant part of their process. It became not part of their process at all. And that was because they, they went through this process. They looked at it. They, they used their intuition. They, they looked at the facts and they decided, you know, we don't need to use this anymore. Um, and, you know, one of the things I mentioned in my, in my article is this idea of a win-win. And, and that's like the example, I think, and we had one of the 60-40 as well that you want to think about, which is, you know, you don't want to think about like, do I abandon this entire thing? It's like, can I do something around the edges that makes this better without taking a huge risk on the other side if I'm wrong? Um, and that's kind of the thing with price to book. I mean, there's a lot of other value factors you can use. So like if, if I had a value composite where price to book was part of it and I just decided I'm going to use all the other ones, I'm going to cut price to book out of it. Have I made like some massive change that can destroy my investment strategy? Probably not. And so I can, if I don't believe it works anymore, I can make that change. I can try to make it a win-win situation around the edges with, without like committing my entire portfolio to some massive change. You're making my brain think of this. Have you ever heard of the concept of a win-win versus a win-win? No. This is a this is like a negotiating theory thing. I'm I'm pretty sure I have a I have an article up on this on Cultish Creative somewhere. It's this idea of like a win-win allows for a mutually beneficial outcome. So it might be me and the strategy I'm using, me and other investors in something. Uh, the win-win allows for even if it's not my exact desired outcome, like something good can still happen. So like a win-win would be like, we're going to do this podcast together and like put this time into this thing and like whatever happens, like we can all benefit from this thing. And that's differentiated from a win-when, which emphasizes the idea of there's some contingency inside of it. And so like in a win-when, and you could differentiate this against like a win-lose where one side is winning and the other side is losing in a negotiation. A win-when says there's very specific contingencies that I have to be aware of on the way in. And that's, I think, one of the key points of differentiation. When you pick like a super, super specific strategy, you want to have an idea of like when this thing is going to work and when it's not going to work to table your expectations. And sometimes one of the worst things you can do is be expecting a win-win when it's really a win-win. And once in a while, it, it doesn't hurt if you're pleasantly surprised when a win-win becomes a win-win too. Well, I, you know, that's an excellent point because as we've been talking about this, I sort of think we've been toggling obviously in two different areas. We've been sort of in the investing camp and we've been in the planning camp. And I think what I would just say is that if you are an investor that is looking at active strategies or strategies that sit at sort of the heart of ETFs that are trying to deliver some type of potential market outperformance, understanding and believing in the process is extremely important because if you don't do that, then that probably means, you know, at the first sign of trouble, you know, you're not going to be able to withstand or make it through to the other side if it is, in fact, a good strategy that has the potential for doing what it's supposed to do. On the planning side, I think it's about, you know, trusting in the process of the advisor um, and the advice they're giving you. And so, you, you know, there's kind of two different ways that, you know, an investor, depending on where you are in your investment sort of career, whether you're a do-it-yourselfer, whether you're someone that uses an advisor, how you can think about looking at a process, whether it's an investment process, a planning process, 
and really how to get the most out of it. And I think that's what you know we've tried to discuss in this article and bring out, even though we've kind of had one foot in each of these different areas, it's, you know, about, you know, understanding the process, believing in it, and then, you know, getting the most out of it, whether it's on the investment side or the planning side. Yeah. And this all, this is all personal. It goes, it goes back to your goals, which I think is a good way to close this up is like, you know, one thing we're sitting here debating whether value investing is dead. You know, if I'm one of Matt's clients and I can meet my goals with an index fund and a bond, you know, allocation, like one, one approach I can take to this value is value investing dead thing is just stay the hell out of it. Like, what do I care? Like, it just doesn't matter. Like, you know, it's, you don't need to be getting wrapped up in all this stuff if you don't want to. I mean, maybe, maybe for your average client, this idea of is the 60, 40, you know, optimal anymore is, is a more relevant debate. But for our clients, the value investing thing is very important, but for some other clients, it, it's not going to be as important. And, and so I think it, it all comes back to your personal goals and it all comes back to fitting your investment strategy to yourself. And if you could do a good job of that, then, you know, this stuff probably, you know, works itself out, I think, over time. The, the sculptor Elizabeth King, the famous quote, process saves us from the poverty of our intentions. And it's this idea of the poverty of our intentions being like the things that we really want to happen in are really specific. Process is what saves us from that specificity. And so a good financial planning process, a sound financial or investment process to complement it putting those things in alignment and a process to making sure they're in alignment is going to spare us from a whole lot of grief on the inevitabilities of we're investing and planning in a messy world. You can't predict the future definitionally. So having a process you can go back to the drawing board on over and over and over again, that's the only way we're going to stay safe. All right, guys, thank you very much for watching. We hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll see you next time. Hi, guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant. You can follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carbono and follow Matt on Twitter at, at Cultish Creative. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. Also, if you have any ideas for topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please email us at excessreturnspod at gmail.com. We would like this to be a listener-driven podcast and would appreciate any suggestions. Thank you.